Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Zoe Griffith. Our topic of discussion today is the Ottoman experience during the period that historians sometimes call the Age of Revolutions. And I think this is a really important and welcome historical explanation of a topic and a theme that is, of course, much discussed within Middle East studies and within public discourse surrounding the region in recent years. Uh, That is to say, revolutions and the relationship of the state to the wider populations under its control. Uh, So today we're very excited to welcome Ali Ayjolu, professor of history at Stanford University, to discuss his work on really the first full-blown experiments with modernizing reforms in the Ottoman context, taking us all the way back to the end of the 18th century. Uh, Ali's book has just come out with Stanford University Press. It's entitled Partners of the Empire, the Crisis of the Ottoman Order in the Age of Revolutions. Ali, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, So some of our listeners are probably familiar with this idea of the Age of Revolutions, possibly from the work of Eric Hobsbawm, who wrote a book with that title in the early 60s. Uh, Hobsbawm's Age of Revolutions is quite European, explicitly European. Uh, He defines the period as spanning 1789 to 1848, French Revolution to the Spring of Nations. Uh, Your book, Partners of the Empire, is taking a very explicitly global approach to this Age of Revolutions, and it's really one of the first efforts to situate the Ottomans within this context So why don't we start out by, um, with you telling us a bit about a global history of the Age of Revolutions. What were the confluences and interconnections that make this period distinct? So this is a kind of, you know, the 18th century was a, there was this globalization uh, because of, you know, the expansion of the colonial powers, uh, but also, you know, the the spread of Mm -hmm. different ideas, especially in military culture, like technology. What happened in like in in terms of like military technology, for instance? What happened in in the uh, uh, in India in the 1770s, 1780s? Were not you know disconnected from what happened in in right. uh, in, in Britain and France. Right. Um, um, so you know we see lots of people like traveling uh, in the world. Uh, lots of people like military experts, mm. uh, particularly engineers. Uh, looking for jobs and positions, uh, lots of refugees mm-hmm, after the mm-hmm. French Revolution mm-hmm. uh, happened to, you know, go Russia, Ottoman Empire, and I- Iran. Mm-hmm. So you know, there, this this kind of a new new phase. Uh, so things, uh, you know, the, on the one hand, I mean, there are there were all kind of new networks and connections and links, uh, uh, and people became more aware of each other i suppose in the 18th century mm-hmm. so this is one thing this is you know 18th century is a much more connected mm-hmm. uh, second uh, there were some similar crises in the 18th century I mean, Jap- from japan to you know in, in eurasia and also in americas mm-hmm. uh, states uh, they were competing uh, militarily and they were in a way encountering similar challenges mm-hmm. because of this competition global competitions um, you know, some historians talk about this military fiscal state formation. When they were uh, f- encountering similar uh, challenges, uh, their alternatives to solve these challenges were also uh, similar. Mm-hmm. Military reform uh, is a big agenda in the in the in the 18th century. Everybody, almost like from China to to the Britain. Uh, all the states and local powers as well uh, were thinking about how to reform their military structures. Mm-hmm. 
and they were inviting military engineers who are freshly educated from different military colleges and academies. Mostly in... In Europe, but also like in Ottoman Empire, for instance, you know, the military academy uh, was founded in the 1770s. Another thing is this fiscal problems and, you know, the, the um, fiscal challenges. Um, and again, the states or political uh, polities, let's put it in like polities, empires or national monarchies, uh, they had um, limited alternatives to raise money. So th- th- these uh, military fiscal reforms, uh, reform agendas, uh, created all kinds of problems in the, in the, in the societies. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is, in fact, some historians argue that you know, the, it, this, this military fiscal uh, transformation really triggered the stormy period that you know, people started to break windows after, you know, um, through the time because they were, you know, communities were asking new taxes, uh, re- recruitment, states started to find new mechanisms for internal borrowing, right. uh, but then states couldn't pay their, you know, debts. So the whole problem about public debt mm-hmm. and uh, military fiscal entrepreneurs came out uh, much more rigorously in the 18th century who became part of this military fiscal formations. And uh, when the state started to ask more taxes, right. they started to find some, some, uh, some mechanisms to solve certain tensions. And what happened in France uh, when you know, Louis XVI invited Etat General, I mean, the, the idea was to solve this problem, mm. fiscal fiscal crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and similar thing what happened in, in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, the Ottomans also, they needed to solve this fiscal shortfall. And uh, the, the fiscal crisis pushed the Ottoman state to give more initiative to the local groups, local mm. communities and the local notables. Uh, I mean, it brings us to... The sort of the first part of your title in term, the partners of the empire. So, who are these partners? There's many of them, but yeah. let's. Uh... Well, the the term uh, the book book's title is uh, partners of the empire, and the, in fact, I borrowed this term from uh, an Ottoman historian, uh, Shahnizade Atullah Efendi. Mm. Uh, he and his his official historian uh, during the reign of Mahmud II. So when he talked about uh, this famous document that I, you know, dedicated my uh, chapter chapter five, I think, yeah, uh, the of Alliance, or Senate Ittifaq, when he discussed that chapter, he said, well, I mean, these people, the, the, the provincial dynasties, in fact, they claim to be partners, mm. although they didn't have right to do so. Hiç hakları yo iken, şirk koştular. So then I thought, well, this is very amazing. I mean, uh, this 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 shirk koshmak, uh, the partnership, uh, and he, you know, he said he chakler yo can, although they don't have right to do so. Mm-hmm. It, it means that it is a struggle for for right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is the inspiration that I got my title. Um, but in fact, um, overall, I'm not only. Um, interested in local uh, notables or local provincial dynasties, uh, but also provincial communities. And uh, I think, uh, on the one hand, yeah, the, the title has two um, meanings or two, two, it has two references. One mm-hmm. is uh, it's more explicitly or more es- exoterically, you know, it refers to Senedit uh, of Alliance and how Dito of Alliance was, was a document of partnership. 
based on surety <laughs> uh, and how the provincial dynasties became partners of the empire, partners of the imperial elite. Well, this is the ex- exoteric meaning of the exoteric reference of the title. The, the other kind of more esoteric, uh, you know, meaning uh, reference of the title is, uh, in fact, everybody became the partners of the empire, including mm-hmm. the local community. So the empire became a more a kind of a collective enterprise, much more than before. Especially in chapter chapter uh, three, I show that you know, the participatory mechanisms increase in the 18th century. So the communities, local collectivities, also became gradually they they participated into pro, into, into governance. Right. So they also became in you know, partners. And Janissaries were already partners of 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 the state. I mean, they were uh, is a kind of a corporation which was in the state but also the outside. The state at the same time, and they became they were also the, the partners. So you know we have a lot multiple partners. Yeah. But I try to not challenge, but try to invite people to rethink about the empire as a more a kind of a collective participatory enterprise rather than as we see in its own official discourse a kind of a, uh, empire which was very centralized. Sure. And whenever it became cent- decentralized, it, it was in crisis. Yes, exactly. I mean, it feels like there's been, for a generation or so, uh, this dissatisfaction with decentralization as the mm, the model, will you say? I mean, after yeah. decline, we sort of picked up the idea of looking at the 18th century as, as a time of decentralization. It's a, a kind of zero-sum game in that regard. As you say, it's either... Uh, a moment of crisis, or it's, an, it's a moment where the state can control its will. Yeah. And you're talking here about, in a global sense, kind of an intensification of state interests in fiscal revenues, in mm-hmm. you know intensifying its relationship to local communities uh, in order to sort of fund these military projects. At the same time, we have this kind of notion of of decentralization, political decentralization, mm-hmm. and you're giving us a model or a, a, a view of the relationships that were uh, established or revisited to overcome the the distance between those things. So, I mean, maybe we can start with, well, we can start Continue. at the bottom yeah. or uh-huh. the top yeah. um, and talk about how did these local communities get incorporated, we can say, into into a closer relationship to the state in this period. To the empire. To the empire. I think in Ottoman, conventionally, um, the local uh, communities were seen as, um, by Ottoman historians, as collectivities either accepting uh, what was dumped on upon them from mm-hmm. the state mm-hmm. or they're resisting and they, they rebelled and right. they fled and, you know. There was no satisfactory framework uh, showing that, in fact, local communities were also part of the system mm-hmm. and they are participating in 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 the, in the empire mm-hmm. instead of just you know accepting or rejecting, uh, being uh, passive or being unruly. There is an, another alternative, which is participation. Mm-hmm. Then I uh, looked at. This particular institution, uh, this Tevzi, uh, this uh, allocation of uh, tax burden and public uh, finance uh, in the in the local at the local level, 
it started very early actually from 16th century onwards uh, it became more uh, visible in the 18th century and became very very formal and uh, very widespread uh, in the 18th century so formal in what sense in formal in that it became more a kind of a, the empire the central authority regular reg, uh, make it regular uh, created certain uh, mechanisms to audit okay uh, and uh, make it more standard in fact, it became it 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 it, it flourished organically from the, from the society. So when the state asks taxes, so they you can either f- collect taxes from uh, very detailed registers that every household. If you know that every, how much every household would pay, uh, then that's that's fine. You can you know ask and you can create it. Uh, Certain um, you can appoint certain individuals who collected taxes uh, from households. But if you don't have information about demographics and resources, uh, states generally prefer to, you know, impose lump sum taxes to the communities and ask the communities to 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 deal with how they share the burden themselves. So this is the starting point. Mm-hmm. And then what happened uh, through throughout the 18th century? Some individuals, uh, rich individuals, mainly powerful people and mm-hmm. rich people. Uh, stood out and they said, okay, why don't we pay all these things and even like we can pay the taxes and then the community can pay to us. Right, okay. So these are what I call them patron creditors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they were like, it's not just, they were were not only creditor, I mean, they were patron creditors because they were also powerful people. They had some political power uh, and uh, they can convince the community. So these are the, these people were in fact the, the, the ions. The local ions. I, I mean, in fact, the term ion were used particularly these people uh, in the 18th century. So the ion had two meanings, right, in the in the 17th, 18th centuries. One is uh, generic meaning of notables, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. powerful notables, powerful people, elites. Uh, when you say ion, ion devlet means notables of the state. So it's not necessarily a local identity, like local local people. But then there's an, another term, another meaning of ion in the 18th century, like these particularly, you know, this this people who paid uh, on behalf of the in behalf, on behalf of the community, the public expenditures, and who dealt with the public public matters for right. the for the local community. The, the central authority realized this rather organically developed uh, mechanisms, TFZ uh, processes and, uh, and the certain patron creditors were dealing with that. They said, okay, this is good. So because it is, you know, it, it really dramatically decreased the transaction cost yes. and it solved many, many problems. Uh, so this is, you know, this is localization, if not decentralization. Yes, right. uh, so entrusting uh, local notables, local communities with their own affairs. But also the affairs of the state uh, in, at the local level, but then they, they this, the, the central authority had this one condition: okay, why don't the communities elect these people? So this is interesting. This this ions became ions through elections, or at least through acquiring a certain um, consent from mm-hmm. the local people. And from the state's perspective, what was the benefit? Benefit to is election? by by doing that, it solved the, these tensions between the local communities and and the and the ions, and uh, it also curbed the power of the more powerful governors who intended to appoint ions because they also collected their own, the, you know, governors imdadies uh, the their their uh, their um, taxes. Mm-hmm. 
So in order to prevent the the governors from dealing, you know, uh, imposing their own man, mm. uh, the central authority asking the communities to to uh, elect it, uh, to elect and to approve uh, these people. And what was the channel of communication then? In, in terms of, if we see IONs in some ways as fiscal intermediaries, maybe, how do these local communities correspond their wishes to the port? or Through the, the courts. So throughout the time, another transformation is that uh, the Qadi courts became local assemblies. In fact, the term majlis, then later used for assemblies. So community leaders uh, sometimes... When we say community, like the Kazakh community, the, the community of the district, where the, the court is the central institution, uh, came to the court. When we say community leaders, we can talk about sometimes 10 people, sometimes hundreds of people. Depends on local local situation, local conditions. And uh, they, uh, these people, they they uh, wrote, asked the Kadi to wrote Arzamahsar, showing their, I mean, like kind of a petition, collective petition, showing their preference. And this preference, uh, they said, well, we elected this person as the ayan. And this was, this document was sent to Istanbul and approved by the Grand Vizier. Right. Well, obviously, this was not very um, smooth process. I mean, uh, sometimes, uh, many times, actually, the communities were divided into factions, their factionalisms. So people competing to be ayan, to be elected by the communities. All kind of, um, sometimes, you know, the, the, you know, the state received, like central authority received one Arza Mahsar saying that we elected this person unanimously. And then another document can, you know, come to, the, come to Istanbul saying that we you know we elect this person unanimously. So there's also the problem of information, how sure. to, you know, um, monitor this kind of elections. Uh, and I found very interesting documents uh, in the Ottoman archives uh, and the court records that, you know, showing very interesting problems of, you know, uh, this, uh, what we can call politicization of the kaza uh, uh, of the districts. In one of the one important example, I in fact I, I mentioned I just summarized in the book the, what happened in Rahova in Bulgaria. It, I also um, published a document uh, in another festschrift of Özer Argenc. Uh, so th- those people are interested in the, the original document uh, they they can find uh, in in that uh, volume. So you know in that uh, episode, uh, two two community I mean the communities were like divided, and. T- Two gr- groups were uh, competing, and uh, it's a very, very complicated period, uh, the process. But eventually, central authority sent uh, inspectors to learn what's really going on. Um, and the, the inspector were asked to carry out a poll. And he asked to go like mekan mekan the you know to to knock the door of every you know every door and ask people's preference really what they really want who they want to choose you know uh, since uh, the, these elections were proto elections i mean they were not elections as we know like and they were not based on um uh majority but unanimity unanimity mm-hmm. um the process is very different than our own elections uh, but they're not necessarily 
bad elections. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, well, I mean, who can say that you know our current uh, electoral practices are better than? Uh, you know the 18th century, you know electoral practices. So, you know some historians, uh, like m- great hist- Bulgarian historian uh, Mutevcheva, uh, she noticed that situation and she wrote an article on these elections. Said, "Well, these are not really elections. I mean, we shouldn't really exaggerate these. In fact, you know, people just um, uh, got these documents from the communities by force, and uh, so we shouldn't think that these are like elections. I don't agree with that." I looked hundreds of these uh, elections and I'm convinced that, in fact, it is a very, very interesting mm. political experience. Mm. Many things were involved. Yes, I mean, it's a po- there's participation. There is uh, politi- that some demonstrations that I found, like some demonstrations. Uh, in Rahova case, you know, you, you one, one can find that. I found also violence. I yes. mean, these are not free from violence or even bloodshed. Uh, corruptions, evil, uh, <laughs> or fabricated documents. But, you know, our current elections had all kinds yes. of <laughs> this as well. So, you know, I don't say that these are really like democratic elections as, we, as in the modern no, democratic societies, right. but, you know, these are uh, pretty interesting uh, participatory experiences. Right. Uh, and if I, you know, um, as I discuss in, in Chapter 3, I mean, the, at the global level, in fact, we, we saw such such practices. Mm-hmm. In China, for instance, in, mm-hmm. you know, in Qing China, mm-hmm. in fact, we have a very similar case. At very similar uh, level um, in in France, I mean, I made a comparison between physiography and and, and this Tevzi system and mm. local participation. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we we can easily situate that pra- local practices and public finance in at a you know um, global 18th century yeah. uh, experience. And and the issue of participation, um, I mean, presumably, if we're talking about I mean, IONS and these district assemblies, it's, uh, or these district participation, it's a more rural context. But on the other hand, you have um, a lot to say in the book, which I think is extremely important, about the role of the Janissaries in this, yeah. in this period, in the sort of late 18th, early 19th centuries. We know, obviously, um, that the thrust of the Nizam al-Jadid in a big way was to address what the Janissaries had become over the course of the 18th century. And there's a way in the book, I'm very interested um, in the way the Janissaries emerge as a possible sort of representation of of a popular current in uh, urban society, I guess. Especially in Istanbul. It's very interesting. So I wonder, um, but it's it's a totally opposing in some period. It's it's an opposing force, I guess. uh, Yes and no. I mean... um Ottoman Empire is an interesting, interesting empire. I mean, Jamal Kafadar, Jamal Hoca, I think, said somewhere that um, it's an empire which really imposed its own image mm. after uh, its demise mm-hmm. uh, very successfully. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for many, many years, Ottoman historians were really convinced by the formal discourse of the Ottoman Empire. And they reproduced that formal discourse uh, for 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 years uh, during you know in the 20th century. Uh, this is by itself a very interesting historiographical problem. In that this formal discourse, Janissaries were missing, and uh, they uh, especially in the in the in the 17th 18th centuries when they 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 were very unruly, mm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're not missing; they were very visible, but their voice yeah. in a way was missing. 
Geniseries were represented by others. Yeah. Since the Geniseries Corps was abolished uh, in a very like brutal way in 1826, even their gravestones were destroyed and their archives were burned. So it's not easy to, to hear their voices. Sure. Yeah. So what the way that I look at it uh, is this. First of all, the Genissary Corps and, um, is, 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 is a part, part of the state. But it's also out of the state, outside of the state. So it's a kind of an institution, a kind of a corporation which is both in the state and out of the state, outside of the state. Mm-hmm. So in a way, if you want, you know, anthropological term, it is a, it's a part of, it's a very important part of the state society. Sure, okay. State society might be a good, good term. Second, uh, there are very poor genissaries, uh, you know, riffraff, if you like. Mm. Uh, they, 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 many, many of these, you know, uh, new immigrants, porters, rovers, you know, in urban societies, is like lumpen proletariat, if you want to use the term. Um, these people uh, uh, sometimes formally, some, but many times informally became the janissaries. They claim to be janissaries. This is very, very interesting. I huh. mean, they, 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 even they don't receive a salary uh, right, uh, a status from, uh, from the central authority. One can claim to be janissary. It is like, you know, being a socialist. But what, would, what does it mean uh, in practice to claim to be a janissary? Yeah. So just a title or a... It's, well, when I say being a socialist, I have to, you know, maybe this term might be edited <laughs> later. Right? Sure. But what I want to say, in fact, it is a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an identity and it's a, it's a political orientation mm. which is to be claimed mm. mm-hmm. as well as a formal status. There were also lots of rich janissaries. So it's not only poor people or uh, urban proletariat, uh, if you will, but also there are, especially in the, in the, in the provinces, uh, some of the, in fact, ayans were ojakla. They were somehow janissaries. Sure. In fact, Bayraktar Mustafa Pasha is a janissary. Sure. Okay. Uh, so it is, yes, it was in the state and outside of the state, but it's also connected very lo- lower urban society with the very higher elite uh, urban and imperial society. So it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting link Absolutely. connecting, you know, up and uh, bottom and up. And so like. did those interests come into conflict uh, in yeah. this period? This, this happened in the, in the 18th century, definitely. This, uh, this, this conflict happened. They were very important to shape the public opinion, especially in Istanbul, but not only in Istanbul, in also in different, like Vidin, for instance, they were very influential before Pazbantolo, or in Erzurum, or in Crete. Since they presented themselves as the guardians of the conventions and, the, and vested interests and rights of the commoners, and since they were very much also involved in artisanal uh, groups, many of them were artisans, and Genissary ship became, was, an, in fact, an artisanal military culture mm. itself. I think the artisanal, uh, esnaf, uh, artisanal groups and Genissary, they were there's a kinship between mm-hmm. these two institutions. Mm-hmm institutions, um, they had this, this power to mobil, mob, mobilize the public opinion uh, more than anybody else. Because of this, that power, uh, that capacity to mobilize the public, they also easily established alliance with, with different groups, uh, higher groups, including uh, the learned, the ulama. Yes, okay. So 
what I, <laughs> the way that I looked at Genesis is, I mean, they were, yes, there's an army. It was an army. It was an artisanal army, if you will. <laughs> it was a, like a union. Mm-hmm. Union, like, which is a collective identity to bargain with the state, with, with the authorities for salary, but also for other uh, privileges and rights. But since they also presented themselves as guardians of the orders, uh, conventions and the vested interests, they also acted as like a political party. Right. So we have to look at from 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 that very complicated perspective, I suppose. And yeah. um, what I found in 1806 uh, and 1808, the Janissary claim and Janissary... Um, politics, if you like, separated from the ion politics. So this separation was, I think, was very interesting. In 1806, in the Edirne affair, Janissaries and the ions of, the, of Bulgaria, particularly, they acted together. They were allies. In, in what? Uh, in what? In, against the Nizam right. against the new order. Uh, there was an alliance between the local notables and the Janissaries. And just to clarify for the readers, I mean I mean for the listeners, excuse me, why is it in Because these the new order the new order means the new army. And the new army challenged obviously Janissaries because it was it, you know it challenges the, the raison d'etat of the Janissaries because it's a new drilled and um, kind of modernized army, if you will, in you know, like Prussian and French model. Uh, but it also, the new order, the idea of new order was also not only discipline the army, but also discipline the society. Sure. I mean, we can talk about it later. Um, uh, so it, it challenged the Janissaries and Janissary public and old conventions. But then the, when the new army, army moved to the Balkans, it also challenged the Ayan. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, it, it would... Um, it, it, this it challenged the, the military power that ions accumulated. Although some of the ions, in fact, uh, and local notables supported the Janissaries throughout the you know uh, the, the reign of Saddam III, when the army moved to the Balkans, to so Edirne, it was a clear message that in fact the Nizamijid uh, as, as a military power now is moving to the Balkans, mm-hmm. and it would eliminate. Possible, uh, this you know, local, local military, military, you know, uh, military centers sure. and military uh, powers that I that accumulated by ion. Uh, so this created kind of an alliance. But when we come to 1808, we see that the ion, the major provincial notables, and the and the new order. New orderists, new order, the the the, the party, the, bureauc- of, the, the party of the new order acted in alliance against the Janissaries. Right. So that was this this break, that which is extremely interesting. Mm. Going to the deed of alliance, the Sanzi Tifak, for a minute. Uh, I mean, so we can talk about this this break, uh, this kind of disintegration of an alliance, but what was the Sanzi Tifak, what was its purpose? And if we're talking about, you know, the state doesn't want 
uh, or the Janissaries acting as a kind of restrictive force. Um, I mean, the state was also not looking for a total reinvention of of the terms of the order, right? I mean, yeah. so so what are the kind of um, parameters and the limits yeah. within the Senate Ittifaq itself? Um, the Senate Ittifaq is an extremely interesting document. Um, and I'm still fascinated by that. You know, I read this document probably a thousand times and I'm still... Each time I found some new new thing. Senate Ittifak is a is a surety bond. It's a Senate Kefalet Senate. It's a surety bond. People became surety to each other, to the each and liable to each other's um, prop uh, behaviors, actions. But at the same time, it it envisioned a new imperial. Uh, New empire, a new order, <laughs> yeah, with a surety bond. This is interesting. I mean, uh, how a surety bond gave birth a new order? How a new order was envisioned with a with a surety bond? So when I compare the Senate the fact with other documents of the Age of Revolutions. You know, I saw. I looked at constitutions. I looked at. Uh, this table, tables of uh, ranking. I looked at declarations of independence, you know, uh, all kind of documents. Uh, I couldn't find any surety bond. So in this respect, it's, one of, it's a unique document mm-hmm. um, uh, of the age of revolutions. But at the same time, it is one of the documents of the age of revolutions because, you know, it... Uh, it also had lots of similar themes about mm-hmm. law and mm-hmm. about due process, about property rights. So yeah, let's not. let's lay out the parameters a little bit for yeah. listeners who might not be familiar. I mean, it's it's a exchange of guarantees essentially, right? Between yeah. So the, exactly, it is a uh, the provincial dynasties and uh, the members of the imperial elite agreed on certain conditions. Uh, and and they also uh, became surety to each other's actions and became liable to each other's actions, became surety to each other's uh, life and property uh, and became liable to each other's actions. And the, the conditions, uh, there are various conditions. Uh, one is to, cre- to build a new army, and this army would be the army of the state, Devlet Ordusu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another uh, condition was that uh, central authority wouldn't um, confiscate the property of, or the wealth of the, the, the dynasties uh, without any legal... Uh, juridical process, and uh, central authority also couldn't execute them without any judicial process. And so what would have been the judicial mechanism? Involved? We don't know. Okay. Uh, they didn't detail it. Okay. Uh, it's not necessarily a easy, like, simple uh, judicial uh, mechanisms of, of a, at, the, at the cut of court. I think there is a more a kind of a negotiational Judicial process in the divan, or you know, or 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 uh, including different, you know, judi- you know, uh, judicial judicial authorities. Sure. But the more interesting is Mahmud II, who was the young sultan, who was just you know enthroned, uh, became one of the contractors. Okay. This is uh, very dramatic. 
in fact, this uh, with the Hattu Humayun, but but he is not one of the ordinary contractors. He's a supreme contractor. Mm-hmm. His his name was not listed in the list of the contractors, but up top, you know, at the at the top of the document. But he himself is that I am the contractor, Mitahit. So the Acht, it can be a contractor, is is the is the major Acht yep. and Tahahut and Mitahit. Yeah. I'm these are the main major terms for for the documents. And he said, well, I am the, I am also you know um, contractor, and I guarantee the the application of the document. Right. Uh, so he's in a way the supreme supreme contractor. Uh, this Hattu uh, Humayun was not available in histories. This is also interesting. It was censored. <laughs> in uh, to mean what? How do you mean? I mean I don't. Well, it's another enigmatic thing. I mean it was probably censored uh, in histories. Uh, because in Ottoman, in in Ottoman histories, in Ottoman okay. histories, I mean, in, in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. First of all, the, the document didn't survive, obviously. And second, I don't think that historians, Asim, Shehanizade, and Jev, that tried, you know, they want to show that Mahmoud II really signed it. Although they mentioned, I mean, they mentioned mm-hmm. about something Hattu Humayun, but they didn't include the Hattu Humayun. Uh, and then when Halil Nalcik wrote a very famous, his very famous article on comparing Senate Senate Ittifak with Tanzimat uh, degree. Uh, he said, well, I mean, this is, yes, it's an important document, but Sultan didn't sign it anyway. Interesting. Uh, so Haliloja didn't uh, see the original document because the original document was not available. Then it was later uh, discovered in Hattu Humayun Tasnifi, in the Ottoman, one of the original documents. I mean, we don't have the original, but it's one of the copies uh, with David the Hattu Humayun. Mm-hmm. Now we, we know that, in fact, Mahmoud II signed it. And was this um, growing out of a sort of understanding, a long-standing understanding of the role of contractual relations, or is this a very new yes, use? Yeah, I mean, I first of all, this uh, Kefalet Senate, Senate issue was very, very common in, throughout the mm-hmm. 18th century. Mm-hmm. A little bit discussed in... Mm-hmm. Chapter three, but uh, some other historians, Hulya, John Bakal, Ishik uh, Tandoan, uh, they wrote very important articles. Uh, this Kefalet uh, and also Betil Basharan uh, wrote in his in her book. She discussed that Kefalet senetleri Kefalet is very very important uh, mechanism to 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 make people um, agree on certain things. And to create a kind of a trust, mm-hmm. to you know, among them. So, what would be another example of of a way that that would be used? Well, these are these were used mainly at, at local level. Uh, for instance, uh, certain communities were asked to be kefil to each other, to mm-hmm. shuruti to each other, not to house bandits. There are tens of hundreds of mm-hmm. such documents. So each of them signed their. This is a legal legal term. I mean, yeah. kefalet senate is a very legalistic. Senate and you know in 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 Islamic law, um, so the Ottomans heavily used that throughout the 18th century, uh, but this is the first time it was used at the imperial level as a, as a constitutional document right. that which uh, was which became um, bounding for everybody, uh, even who didn't sign it. Um, so it, in a way, it 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 is a it's it is it is a it's a founding document. It's really a kind of a constitutional. Uh, document constitution in the sense that it really situates stipulated the terms of the new order right new order the real new order 
Okay. It didn't survive, uh, and this is another. But it's not. It's anti-climax. In fact, it didn't survive. But many elements. Uh, I, you know, I sat in the book. It's like a text test drive. <laughs> Uh, many elements uh, of Senate continue to shape the Ottoman constitutional struggles and constitutional history throughout the 18th and 20th centuries. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of my favorite sort of points you made in the book was, as with so many things maybe in Ottoman history, the Senate the Falk is, hasn't been very well studied because it failed in a sense or mm, because yes. it wasn't successful. And there are so many of these kind of dead ends yeah. in Ottoman history. And one of the things I really appreciate about this book is the uh, the way it avoids following all these kind of teleological narratives. I mean, it's talking about revolution and constitutional mechanisms, but without sort of uh, pinning all of the, the direction of the argument to one of these outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sort of is, I mean, even though we're not talking about, the point of the book is not to talk about... Um, you know, the success or failure of of this document or, you know, whether this means that the Ottomans didn't have a revolution or did have a revolution, one of these things. It is interesting to talk about some of the practical, logistical, structural reasons why uh, this document in particular had kind of a short lifespan and maybe why then in the 19th century um, it doesn't have the same kinds of limiting effects mm-hmm. that it could have had on constitu- on, on, on constitu- monarchical yeah political life on of, sultanic you know, authority yeah, yeah i mean the, the document didn't have chance to live survive i mean the because you know after just a couple of le- months later there was another um revolution i mean the revolution or riot whatever you call it uh in in istanbul and the the architects of uh, the documents were either killed, were killed or or fled. They just you know, um, some of them went to Russia. It's also interesting. Russia became really a kind of um, interesting diaspora of mm. new orders in the in the nineteenth century. Mm. Second, um, Halil Bey Halil Naljik said, well, it it didn't survive because you know it really. If if it had survived, it, it really like um, had an imp- very negative impact to the Ottoman integration, and uh, so in this respect, it is against his is against the time, because uh, then what the Senate like, envisioned the empire was a kind of a fe- almost like a feudal uh, system with like you know I, I think I said in the book like imagine like. Twenty or something, Mehmet Ali Pasha running the empire altogether. Right, sort of federal, of federal, yeah. <laughs> Ariel Sazman called this federal solution. I think I I would agree with that. The term uh, was a federal or a kind of a more a Polish system. Kind of 18th century Poland had similar dynamics. Um, that you know the notables provincial aristocracy had this liberum veto and you know like everybody also somehow liable to each other or something and it didn't survive obviously Poland was Poland disappeared uh, so Halil Bey said well I mean the document didn't have this um, inv- this vision to, to for centralization and for, for modernity okay. the mechanism this kind of surety bond creating a new empire with a surety bond uh, didn't survive first, but the the idea that creating an empire as as a collective 
um, system, kind of a, if you want to call this participatory empire. Uh, in fact, this, this idea continued. Uh, Asim, you know, called this, I didn't somehow mention this, I should have, but Asim called this document as a Republican document. Well, if it's a Republican document, if Asim, Mutarjim Asim was right, well, eventually Turkey was found as a republic. So one can even think that there was a continuity between the document and, and the republicanism in the 20th century. Further, uh, the, the coalition, the, the nature of the coalition that, you know, the reformists, the bureaucrats and military reformists and the provincial elite, the coalition of these two powers, same coalition that we see in, in the you know war of independence in, in you know in, in Anatolia. Exactly the same coalition. Uh, so the political patterns also continued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think that's more than that's more than coincidence. But in, yeah, I yeah. mean this is a social social political um, uh, logic which created Senate Ittifak, and the same political social logic was available was there during the you know uh, uh, in 1919 and 1920 in Anatolia, uh, which created a Misak Milli. Uh, you know, this is another Misak, and uh, you know, it's the same. I think there's, there's one can think of kind of an interesting parallelism. Another thing, uh, many elements like the, especially the the, conf- the the state cannot confiscate the property and. Um, uh, wealth of without judicial process and uh, execute uh, without again judicial process. This principle became the principle of Tanzimat. Yeah. Um, so it's also you know continued, and uh, one can easily say that this was also a dry run of mm. of, of, of Tanzimat. Yes. Uh, what I tried to do in a way, uh, among other things, showing that 18th century. Uh, which culminated, which ended with Senate Ittifak in my way, in my own reading, is very, very, very important to understand. Yes, I need, I uh, don't, I don't need to be uh, shy to use the term, uh, democratic culture mm-hmm. uh, in this region, the Balkans, uh, Turkey, and the Arab world. A very, I don't mean that this, you know, the 18th century was, uh, you know, what the oldest institutions, developments, isn't it democratic, as we, we, we use the term right now, of course not, but they're extremely important to understand what we have right now. Yes. Uh, and uh, we don't, um, we shouldn't ig- ignore it and we shouldn't uh, undermine it. It's very, very valuable. It is, it's a treasure. These, these all the repertoire of institutions and practices and documents is a great provides us an amazing repertoire of uh, our you know uh, democratic experience. And I think that this is such a timely uh, a timely work, both in the sense that it provides this backstory to um, these issues that we've been talking about in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, also providing the opportunity to think about. Uh, revolution in a long, long durée and the way it plays out exactly. over a great deal of time and exactly. I mean for this moment in time it's a very exactly. important for this discussion. moment especially yeah, for this moment yes, yes so um, thank you so much thank you so much for coming We've thank you thank you for having me Ali's new book Partners of the Empire is now available uh, we have a link to um, a link to the book to 
outlets where you can find it on our website. Um, I think this will quickly become one of the go-to texts for helping us bridge the early modern-modern divide in Ottoman studies and obviously to think more about um, the issues that we've been talking about today. If you want to find out more, um, you can find a short bibliography of related works in Ottoman historiography and beyond on the website. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I hope you'll join us next time.